0: The title of today's talk is Legal Prediction and Calcification Risk. Um, if that sounds arcane or impenetrable or just difficult to understand, don't worry. Uh, the purpose of the chat today is to clarify as much as possible what that is and why it's an ethical challenge that we should be thinking about. So as an initial matter, it's worth talking about AI in the legal profession. I know that this is an interdisciplinary center. Lots of people are coming here from different disciplines, including um computer science philosophy many of you are legal technology enthusiasts others of you are uh, deep skeptics and i want to give uh, i want to offer something for everyone and so let me start by telling the story about what ai is doing in the legal profession and in the law as a discipline writ large so you can kind of understand ai is impacting the legal profession in three distinct ways uh, or along three categories the first is ai for legal practice which relates to the development of machine learning, natural language processing, uh, sometimes computer vision, enable tools that help lawyers do their job better, right? And so I don't find this as intellectually interesting as some might, uh, uh, you know the impact that these AI tools for legal practice have had is a lot like the impact that say Excel had on accountants. You know, It definitely made their job a lot easier. It definitely allowed them to perform more complicated functions, but uh, it doesn't contribute to a, a significant rewiring of how the profession does its work and how it thinks through its problems. So my colleague Albert Yoon here at the law school writes a lot about uh, labor markets in the legal profession. And these AI tools, uh, some of which involve significant automation uh, in legal practice um, really do promise a substantial reconfiguration of the labor market in legal services um, but are not the focus of my talk today. Another area that AI is impacting the law is in uh, what you might call algorithmic decision making or what I call here AI for public decision making. And so that's everything from tax and immigration authorities using AI to make determinations about who gets what or who's allowed in to your uh, bank making a determination about whether you can, whether you're qualified for a loan and doing so algorithmically. Um, This has been an intense subject of debate for many people especially in the world of ethics, you know there are deep critics of the use of algorithmic decision-making in certain settings, especially in settings where life and liberty are at stake. Uh, you'll, plenty of you will recall um, a famous uh, ProPublica investigation about the use of algorithmic decision-making in um, uh, setting uh, release and bail conditions um, in Broward County, Florida. That's an example of uh, algorithmic decision-making that has been seen as kind of fraught with all kinds of problems. For instance, reproducing discrimination. Very fascinating, not the subject of my talk either today. The thing I'm focused on today is the use of AI to um, improve or buttress legal knowledge, okay? So you'll notice in these pictures, I have two robots and then I have um, a kind of surly looking fellow here. And that's, um, some of you might recognize, Oliver Wendell Holmes the great American jurist uh, and legal scholar, Um, Oliver Wendell Holmes famously talked about something called the prediction theory of law, right? So just to quote from the right side of this slide, the prophecies of what the courts will do, in fact, and nothing more pretentious, are what I mean by the law. So what's he really talking about there? He's talking about legal prediction as really what the law is. So if I'm to say, I own this house, according to Oliver Wendell Holmes, what I'm really saying is I own title to land that I'm sure that in the future, a court will uphold. Right. And so when we make legal statements, we're not simply reciting from doctrine. We are making predictions about what future courts are likely to do. Right. And this is a lot of why when you you know talk to your lawyer friends or friends who maybe are going to law school and you ask them what you think is a black and white binary legal question they will respond with it depends and the reason they say that is because it really does depend right it depends on a a whole host of legal information from multiple different sources what the answer to those questions are and you know, you're, the lawyers and the law students, they know that it's not enough to say, here's what the law says written down. They know that what you're really asking is what's likely to happen. And so there's a way in which the Oliver Wendell Holmes prediction theory is kind of how we already think about the law. But it also represented what I would say is a serious ambition for lawyers, which is to better be able to forecast what's likely to happen. Why? Because you know that when a client comes to you and has a question about, um, uh, you know, they have they have a question about their own personal legal jeopardy. They don't want you to just explain the doctrine. They want to know what their exposure is. <coughs> Excuse me. They want to know what's likely to happen to them. And so they're asking you to be as good and uh, effective forecaster. And in fact, they could very well judge your performance by um, how accurate your prediction was about what was likely to happen. Of course, they'll judge it also by your ability to shape those events, but they're really also thinking about, um, you know, were you right in the first instance? And so you could say that one of the ambitions of the legal profession also was to improve our ability to forecast what uh, what's likely to happen. Now, one thing I'll say about this is, of course, there's, you know, this is a bit of a stylized, Uh, Notion: This idea that law is merely prediction. Law is not merely prediction, of course, right? There are various ways in which um, you might well know what a future court is likely to do, but you set out as a lawyer on a path to change and avert what you think they're likely to do through, of course, uh, legal reasoning, the strength of your argumentation, your appeal to certain policy outcomes. Um, You know, I don't want to uh, suggest that the legal profession are merely passive actors. And in fact, that observation is what poses one of the ethical problems that we'll discuss later in this talk. So uh, let's put a pin in that and, and, and uh, pick it up later. OK. I think to better understand this issue, we should take a step back and think about these different eras of legal information in the profession. So the first is what you might call the analog era. So once upon a time, the way that people got answers to legal questions was to, you know, navigate the stacks of libraries and and, uh, check case reporters and determine uh, from reading that information what the law is and was, right? And so, you know, if you watch, a lot of TV shows and there's a lawyer. You'll see very often they're standing in front of what look to be these beautiful, sometimes uh, quite large, hardbound textbooks. Um, those are not just textbooks; those are actually sometimes case reporters. And case reporters are compendia that um, that sort of categorize. All of the cases that have been released in a given year. And so you had volumes of legal cases that people were flipping through, thumbing through in this very brick and mortar way. And even though that's a perfectly satisfying tactile experience, I like thumbing through books myself. I I love having books. Um, It's terribly inefficient for legal research and it's terribly inefficient. uh, It's a terribly inefficient way to identify legal answers. Why? Well, a couple of reasons. One is because it's time intensive, that speaks for itself. The other is because it's it's very expensive. And when I say expensive, think about the costs in a couple of ways. One, it's expensive because hardbound textbooks and these huge volumes of case reporters are very costly to procure. They're still available. If you uh, get curious, you can do a Google search and try to find how much one of those books costs. They're expensive. And so, uh, People, individuals with resources, right, law law firms, law schools, um, are able to build these collections of legal information. Whereas, say, your solo practitioner, criminal defense lawyer, a public interest lawyer who's who's you know advocating for indigent clients, maybe wouldn't be because they're they're more resource limited. Um, The other thing is, of course, the you know quite real physical and logistical limitations, um, which is you know, your universe of legal information in the analog era was kind of limited to the volumes that you could physically access. Um, Oliver Goodenough once talked about Abraham Lincoln and said his legal practice was limited by the number of books he could fit on his horse, um, which is a funny statement, but it's also kind of true of law libraries pre ni- pre the 1970s and the advent of uh, digital databases. Your universe of legal advice that you could Render uh, was limited to the information you could access and that information was often sort of tied to physical locations. Not good enough. Right. And so in the 1970s, you start to see more computerization, much as with every industry, you start to see uh, digital databases developed. So all the legal information that was available to us in the analog era in these books becomes digitally accessible, right? And so the research databases that some of you might hear about, Westlaw, Lexis, uh, sort of emerged in this era. Um, today, we're at the beginning of what we might call the computational era, right? So where the digital era merely platformed the information that existed in the analog era, right? Took the books, put them online. The computational era treats all of that digital information as data and says, what can we do with this? Uh, What kind of functions can, can we perform? What kind of insights can we glean from this information? What kinds of patterns can we identify in this information? So if you're trying to answer a legal question, like, you know, what is, Um, what constitutes assault in a certain jurisdiction, let's say, not to pick a a difficult or harrowing example. Um, It's, you could identify it in the books, read some cases that sync up with your client's situation, or you could, you know, with a few keystrokes in, in the modern computational era, Uh, synthesize all of that information, identify important distinctions between cases, identify patterns in the material, your blind spots, all of these things that technology allows us to do. And the key thing that happened between, uh, on this timeline, the digital and the computational era was the advent of machine learning enabled tools, right? The application of machine learning to uh, legal information. Okay, so, what this basically means is that we're now capable of. Just a slide back here. We're now capable of of identifying and having statistically accurate predictions about what the law is. That is what future courts are likely to do. And so, how does that happen? Well, in the machine learning world, there's a pretty you know transparent process for how you can develop legal predictions. Um, you know, uh, to, to to take my briefly take my academic hat off and put on my um, uh, uh, you know, developer of legal tools uh, hat on, which is a hat I, I don't wear uh, as much today. Um, these were, of course, labor intensive and highly difficult ways to develop uh, uh, legal predictions, but they're getting easier because the rate of of change in computing power and the increase in computing power is really significant. You know, today, we're able to do things with legal information that we weren't able to do five years ago. And five years before that, we were basically able to do very little that we're able to do today. And so five years from now, we might be even better able to um, accurately predict what future courts are likely to rule. And not just courts, but regulators, arbitral bodies, other adjudicative authorities, um, and make determinations about what the law is and is likely to be. So how does it work? Well, first you begin with a question of law right? Then you identify what are the critical factors involved in answering that question of the law, right? So the canonical example that I like to use in this kind of setting is uh, one that's pretty topical for observers of the modern economy, which is um, whether a worker is an independent contractor or an employee, right? So this matters for a few reasons. In the tax law, it matters because Employers of employees have to withhold certain taxes. Um, They also have to extend certain workplace protections to people who are uh, employees. Um, Independent contractors, of course, um, ostensibly have more freedom to arrange their own affairs in the workplace. Um, They are responsible for their own payroll taxes. Um, And they do not, you know, know, to use the U.S. as an example, they do not um, benefit from certain uh, employment law protections. So it's a pretty high stakes determination about whether someone is an independent contractor or an employee. The famous kind of situation is, (coughs) excuse me, the so-called gig gig economy workers, so Uber Uber drivers. A lot of Uber drivers are... um, you know, bringing suits uh, to try to get them classified as employees under the law. Why? Because they've calculated that it's a more beneficial position for them. Um, for instance, they can unionize and 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 um, begin to collectively bargain. If so, they'll have certain federal civil rights protections. Um, so it matters. It really does matter. And so that's an example of a fact intensive question of law. The legal determination. For whether someone is a worker or independent contractor is not as simple as reading a definition from a statute. In fact, it's actually kind of like a touch and feel test. It's like someone is more likely an independent contractor as per the law if they can control their own schedule, if they use their own tools, if they're able to take on other employment, if they don't take, if they take on some downside risk of the enterprise, if they don't wear uniforms, right? Um, Whereas someone is more likely an employee if they use the employer's tools, if they the employer controls their hours and how they perform their job, if they don't are not involved in the downside risk of the enterprise, if um, they do wear uniforms, it's 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 almost a a um, I think I I think it's best to describe it as a, a sort of like touch and feel analysis, right? Um, courts based on these criteria know when something should be characterized as an independent contractor versus as an employee. So it's a very fact intensive question of the law, right? So we've determined these critical factors, right? Uniforms, controlling your own schedule, etc. The next thing to do is synthesize all of that legal information, right? And so the benefit of being able to use machine learning is, whereas me as a lawyer, if I'm advising on that legal question, the first thing I might do is read some cases. Now, of course I'm limited as a human being to as many cases as I can, you know, as I have the wherewithal. Well, first of all, I'm limited to as many cases I have access to. Second, I'm limited to as many cases as I can read about the subject. And third, I'm limited to, you know, because of my education, my ability, I'm limited to, um, let's just say, Uh, you know, my, you know, I I might feel like I have a great capacity for insights and analysis about uh, the subject, but I also, you know, someone might be better than I am at this. And so I'm also personally limited by my, my ability as a lawyer. And so my advice is all subject to those constraints. Now, the benefit of using machine learning is it doesn't suffer those same limitations. So one, um, you know, to, in order to make a use a machine to have a machine learning algorithm, you'll need to populate it with all of the information, all of the legal information. It can read and, and and synthesize all of that information because the nature of computing power is that you know it doesn't take it time to read the information in the same way that it takes me, right? And also, when it comes to analysis, when it comes to revealing insights, when it comes to being able to glean information that might be hidden to me it can do so in a highly parsimonious way. And so it doesn't have the same limitations that I might, right? Once you have all the material, you have to apply, test, and refine the algorithms. That is, you have to use methods to to retrieve the salient legal information. Now, the thing about this which is significant is at this stage, you're involving people who are potentially non-legal professionals, right? Data scientists, Computer scientists. So it's already a little more collaborative than traditional legal research is. And then, you know, in order to validate, you have to monitor and process new rulings. So, for this algorithm to properly work, for this kind of tool to be effective and replicable and to give me consistent and accurate answers time over time, we have to make sure that if there's new law, if there's new cases uh, bearing on whether a worker is an independent contractor or an employee. That the algorithm is is informed and abreast of that new information and so you continue to populate in this dynamic way okay <clears throat> now one thing to think about here is just the sheer volume of information this is, this is involved in processing so i'll give you an example from today you know i teach uh, tort law and today i was thinking about uh negligence in schools i was like you know just trying to come up with an example for my students about um When school boards can be are potentially held responsible for um, uh, negligent acts, and I just did a quick search of negligence and school board, um, trying to come up with some American case law, and there were three thousand five hundred fifty-five cases. So, in my own legal research, I would have to now continue to filter down and try to identify what cases I can use, which ones, you know. Are best for the point that I'm making, but I started in uh, sort of a already qu- kind of deep waters, right? There was so there was so much information, and the benefit of using machine learning methods is it it, it can process that information and identify what the relevant it, the relevant and important insights are in a way that is much quicker than I can, right? I can apply as many filters as I want to instead sort of narrow it down, but I might miss a lot of information along the way because I'm using human discretion. Um, moreover. It could be beneficial for me to read everything. I just will never have the ability to. That's a major advantage of using machine learning. Okay. <clears throat> just to compare everything I've talked about here to your traditional judicial approach. So the way judges make determinations is, you know, you could categorize it as they're doing really three things. They're, they're receiving information, they're taking in inputs. They're performing a mapping function. That is, they're taking what those inputs are and mapping it onto the salient and relevant legal doctrine. And then they are providing an output, which is a judgment, often a written judgment. And in it, for legal prediction, we're trying to approximate that process, except the inputs that we take in are test facts, right? So all of the cases about whether a worker is an independent contractor and employee get used as a... As, uh, training material for the algorithm, the mapping function is machine learning doing its best to approximate the legal reasoning, and the output rather than a judgment is a prediction, right? And so what's the consequence of this? The consequence of this is that lawyers can begin to get a real-time sense of what ju- courts are likely to do. They can do things like evaluate the strength of their legal position to say, you know, that that strategy is not really consistent with the way that case law tends to go. Or they can even provide advice to their clients about whether or not they should continue down a certain path, whether they should undertake a certain strategy based on its likelihood of success. And so you can imagine this being used for triage. You could imagine this being used to... to structure arguments so that they become more plausible and persuasive for courts. But you could also imagine it being used just to improve your own legal knowledge, right? So when someone asks you a question, you just have a better, uh, more rigorous answer. Importantly, importantly, you know, I'm a law professor, I teach in a law school, I'm a lawyer, I think about the law. I certainly am invested in there being a future for people like me and for the students that I teach and my peers and my colleagues, this does not replace As at least as I've described it, does not replace human judgment. The idea here is that it raises the floor for legal knowledge. So at a minimum, we're eliminating some of the constraints that I described, and we can start to perform our analyses with better information. Okay, so what does this mean in the adjudicative context? Well, for prospective litigants, it probably means less litigation. Why? Because if you know what a future court is likely to do, at a minimum, you could imagine that weeding out some of the frivolous lawsuits. You could also imagine that um, I would say forcing you, leading you to second guess whether you should bring some litigation. It also might encourage you to settle more frequently if you have a real time sense of your leverage. But if you do wish to go down the path of making legal arguments, they can be better informed. Better informed. For courts, it could mean more consistent decision-making. Imagine a judge having access to a tool that allows them to predict um, how a case uh, will likely be decided. Looking at all the information, synthesizing all of that precedential material, judges may be more inclined to make decisions That are consistent with the entire corpus of case law. And then of course, judges will rely less on parties for information. A really funny thing about the adversarial legal system is that judges are, you know, even though they're not passive actors, they engage a lot in case management and judges do shape outcomes in many, many ways. Judges rely very much, I would say, in substantial parts on the lawyers, the competing lawyers, to appraise them of the relevant legal information for that case. They read the briefings, they read the facta, they read the the party's legal materials, and that informs um, the decision. Of course, judges also have clerks and there's professional staff that help supplement that legal research. But by and large, um, what's happening is judges are choosing as between or synthesizing from information provided by the parties. And so if judges have more of an independent ability to do that research, um, at least in a, in a quick way that doesn't tax judicial resources, then you can imagine them being less reliant on the parties too. Okay, what is the downside of all of this? Where is the ethical problem here? Where's the social problem here? Where's the political problem here? Well, there's quite a bit. Right. Uh, the term calcification, I borrow from um, a couple of places. I think some of you have at least read the Justice Matsuhara piece, where he says, um, almost in passing reference, yeah, one of the potential downsides of legal prediction is that the law can become calcified. Uh, Kermit Roosevelt, in, in, in a, a law journal article, says um, talks about constitutional calcification. You know, legal principles settling um, in constitutional law. What I'm talking about here is that the sort of dynamic evolution of the common law um, becomes sort of much less so. So as legal prediction becomes more possible, so too does the risk of doctrinal calcification is what I wrote here. So what do I mean by that? Well, first you have to have a theory of the common law and a sense of what the common law does and and is. And so for the non-lawyers here, one thing to think about is You know, the law is sometimes in statutes, Uh, often it's not, often it's principles that we divine from the corpus and universe of case law. Sometimes we can't even understand what the law is, the legal rights and obligations the law is assigning to you purely from a statute, you have to read subsequent case law to determine how that gets interpreted. And so a lot of what we think of as the law in common law jurisdictions comes from these cases. And so if we get to a place where we're able to predict what's likely to happen, and parties use, base their arguments on that prediction, and courts even sometimes base their decisions on that prediction, then is the common law less likely to change? Now, one, if you're a, a legal tech enthusiast and you say, hey, you know, less likely to change, that could be a good thing. There'll be much less variation and heterogeneity in the case law, good. That can mean more predictability of, of what's like to happen, potentially good. That predictability means that you and I can plan our affairs out there in the world, uh, in the social world, um, without fear of arbitrariness from the courts, potentially also good. But think of the downsides here too. Think of the times in history where the law had to be responsive to social changes, where courts mounted judicial interventions and maybe bucked the trend of the case law in favor of espousing what they viewed as the correct legal principle. And so the kind of famous case is Brown v. Board of Education um, in the U.S. Supreme Court, where um, the U.S. Supreme Court rejected the separate but equal doctrine and uh, uh, m- sort of explained how how segregated schools were unconstitutional as per the law. Now. Subsequent observers talk about that case as a case that doesn't have the same sort of defined legal content as a traditional Supreme Court decision. Why? Because the court was not swayed by the traditional separate but equal arguments. The court, in fact, had to look at a history of case law that was producing bad social outcomes and say that is not correct as per today's constitutional principles. In fact, the court was you know, highly influenced by social scientific studies in that case. And so some scholars have talked about that case as a moment of a sort of a social intervention by the courts. Um, that is to say, sometimes following precedent can lead to suboptimal social outcomes. You know, if, if, if you're in a racist society and you're trying to judge a discrimination case, it stands to reason that some of the case law that has been produced in that racist society had outcomes that were poor for people of color. And so if you have an algorithmic prediction that merely reproduces, rather learns from all of that information, what prediction is it likely to offer you, right? And so if you're a court, you have to think about this and say, what about my discretion and capacity to be responsive to changing social mores, to be responsive to changing political situations, to better capture the the you know state of public thinking on an issue, or even my ability to be uh, persuaded by the virtue of certain legal arguments over others. <clears throat> Excuse me. So the calcification problem really can manifest in a couple of ways. One way is that. Parties might bring fewer socially challenging cases, right? We talked about Brown v. Board of Education as one example of um, a judicial intervention. But really, you know, courts don't bring cases themselves. People bring cases. And people very often bring cases to challenge certain laws as they're currently on the books, right? There's a a rich tradition of public interest litigation in the U.S. and Canada. I would say a growing um, movement towards uh, social change lawyering that is, lawyer, uh, using the courts um, for the express purpose of uh, seeking change in the law. Now, the the challenge of a world of algorithmic prediction is that fewer of those cases could be brought if people are able to predict and say their likelihood of success is low, right? They might make decisions about using their resources in other ways, perhaps legislatively. um, Or you know, the chilling effect that happened this way, where um, individuals could bring those cases, but make arguments that are more palatable for the courts based on those predictions. In which case, some of the important information the courts need to hear from litigants about say the consequences of certain uh, judicial approaches, uh, never reach the court's attention. Another way this could happen is that courts could be just less inclined to depart from precedent, right? Um, often we talk in the law about doctrinal cover, courts making decisions they might want to make anyway, but finding um, adequate interpretive and doctrinal cover uh, so that the the decision appears rooted in uh, the legal language and in in the common law tradition. Um, You know, one of the perhaps benefits uh, of increased legal prediction is that it's more, you know, there's more input and output transparency. And so we have a better sense of whether a court should have made that decision. Um, And so could you imagine a judge um you know you know feeling perhaps ad- additionally uh, scrutinized as a result perhaps that could have a chilling effect on their dis- their desire to depart from precedent the result and the consequence of this could be that the common law becomes less dynamic and responsive to social change important point important point okay I will uh, wrap with a brief discussion of some of the interventions and then open it up for questions. So a few of the potential safeguards against what is this challenge of calcification in the law that legal prediction could bring about. One potential safeguard is, of course, the principle of adversarialism. So we talk very often about how the law in common law systems is a contest as between two competing visions, right? You have, say, plaintiff and defendant. They have competing ideas of what the facts of the case are, but they also have different ideas about how the law should be interpreted. Once you get to the appellate courts, you have petitioners and respondents who are making even more detailed legal arguments, perhaps even coming at it from with different interpretive frameworks. And so the principles of adversarialism and the fact that the law always promotes this kind of contest and actually needs this kind of contest for our adjudicated system to work, um, create a situation where even if we have a legal, even if we have legal prediction, and even if we have a sense of how cases should be decided, litigants who nevertheless decide to bring cases are still going to find ways to make competing arguments. And so courts are still in the position where they have to uh, choose as between these two different visions. And so uh, this is maybe undermining a little bit of the stylized example that I raised earlier. The one which I'm much more invested in is legislation, right? So think about what the common law is, right? The common law is, you know, a, the universe of case law that explains, clarifies, edifies legal principles. Now, there's been a movement towards what, you know, Guido Calabresi has called statutorification, where more of the law gets written down and there's, you know, a growth of positive law in statutes. and much of our world, you can think about the tax law, you can think of the bankruptcy law, corporate law, uh, more and more criminal law uh, is, is in statutes. And that doesn't necessarily mean that case law is less important, but it means that legislators have opportunities to clarify the inner and outer bounds of the law and how the law should be interpreted. And so if there's a risk of the law calcifying, the common law calcifying, there's always room for legislative interventions where the, the public spirit, of a given law can still be uh, included in legislation. Now, there's a really good example of this in the tort law, which is disability, disability accommodation. So the tort law was really unresponsive to the needs of disabled individuals for a long, long time. In fact, it wasn't until the post-Civil Rights Act era of sort of great society legislation that the tort law and the common law judges started to say, people with disabilities ought to be integrated. So our view of what the appropriate standard of care is, our view of uh, whether uh, people who do not provide adequate safeguards and accommodations for people with disabilities are negligent was really informed by the growth of these statutes, was really informed by uh, this legislation. And so the common law changed in in part, of course, it didn't go far enough. to take on this more integrationist approach to disabilities um, in part because of the cues that it was reading from legislation. And so the legislation can be bi-directional. It can crystallize what we want from the law, but it can also send signals to common law judges about uh, new approaches. And so um, calcification is never the end of the story where there's opportunity to legislate. And you know, my colleagues in civil law systems might say, we ought to write this all down anyway. The third thing is that judges, of course, remain free to depart from precedent, uh, of course, where they're permitted to by the law. So the kind of judicial intervention you saw from Chief Justice Warren and Brown v. Board is not impossible in a world of legal prediction. In fact, you could argue that legal prediction and getting a sense of what the sort of likely outcome of a case is, is a better starting point for this kind of departure because, at least we can have an honest accounting of what the law is rather than a uh, sort of turgid like uh, dispute about what the law is really saying. Um, if we can if we can look at the law and say you know the law of sexual harassment is bad right here's what it is and that's bad we ought to move on um, that's a potentially more transparent way for these judicial interventions to occur rather than the doctrinal cover that I talked about earlier. And then of course a related point is there's more input and output transparency uh, in algorithmic legal prediction. That is, we have a set, we have a better sense of what the facts are, we have a better sense of what the law is. Uh, and we can kind of see what goes in one end and comes out the other. And so uh, the, the kind of like difficult to um, parse and difficult to understand nature of legal decisions today uh, could be more open to the public. Uh, so people without use specialized legal training, can participate in some of the decision making and get a sense and be better critics of cases. And so these are the kinds of things that maybe suggest that the calcification problem might not be as out of control as perhaps I've laid it out to be, um, and still might counsel in favor of legal prediction enjoying widespread use.